0: are starting in Leviticus today, church, um, because it is, it is, well, first off, how many of you have skipped over Leviticus when you've hit that part in your daily reading? Okay, thank you for being honest. Uh, I know that's probably more of you. That's okay. We'll work on our honesty. Leviticus is a, is a wonderful book all about what it means to be a priest, which kind of follows Exodus well, because if you remember when we left off in Exodus, this was a while ago, but there were like 10 straight chapters of how do you build the tabernacle, what are the priests supposed to wear, all these directions, basically all these blueprints. And when you get to the end of Exodus, the question that's lingering for the Israelites is, well, we know what priests look like in other nations. What, what's so special about being one of God's priests? What, is, what does that mean for us? if we are a priest for God? And we kind of, we get the same question with the Great Commission. right? We know we've been called to share who Christ is. We know we've been called to make disciples, but how can we tell if we're actually making people into the image of Christ or into the image of ourselves or something else? I mean, just like Israel had to, you know, kind of unlearn what priesthood looked like from other cultures and relearn what God was after. That's kind of what Jesus was getting at in the Great Commission. So to be a priest follows up nicely what Jesus kind of left us with in the Great Commission when we left off in Matthew. And why I love going to the Old Testament, guys, is it gives us these pictures that what God has been after or what he demonstrated for us in Christ was what he's always been after, right? That Jesus didn't, he did come along and do a bunch of new things, but he also fulfilled a lot of what God already said. Hey, this is for years, for every generation, this is what I desire. And so on a Sunday where we're talking and we're, we're getting to see the next generation getting dedicated to the Lord, we're gonna get to go to the Old Testament and see this is what God has been after from his people, from his priests throughout all of time. So real quickly, Before we dive into Leviticus, I want to give you uh, a couple quick guidelines. Uh, When we're reading this, I'm not going to pay as much attention to, you know, which animal is being killed, how the animal is being killed, uh, what they're doing with the leftovers. Some of those details are kind of important, but we're not going to read this with the, you know, the, the engineer mindset of like, how do we duplicate exactly what we're seeing done in the temple? We're going to watch for three things, okay? We're going to watch for people. We're going to see who does the Lord talk about, who is getting involved with what. We're going to look for anything that sounds like a purpose statement. You know, it it should be done for this to happen or so that or because. Any of those little triggers that say these things take place so that blank happens, we're going to watch for purpose statements. And then we're going to watch for patterns and imagery. So as I read this, you're going to hear some phrases and some things get repeated. A couple times you're also going to hear some stuff sound really oddly specific and typically if you come across those details in the old testament god is not uh he's not delighting in holding his authority over you that i'm going to make you do something that's just going to look really funky now he has a purpose and usually if he's asking you to do something a bunch of times or to do something really odd it's to remind you something about who he is okay so we're going to watch those things as we go through chapter 1. And the, what we're also going to see is if Christ is our high priest, then whatever picture we're getting in Leviticus should match Jesus. Okay? And now I, we're, we'll do a little dive into the New Testament so we can say, okay, if this is what we're seeing here, then does this look like Jesus? And then the last thing we're going to do is we're going to see if this is God's design in the Old Testament, and this is how Jesus fulfills it, then what does that mean for us as the church? And why I picked Leviticus is each of the different offerings that God called his people to have kind of tied to the values we have as a church, okay? Now, I know that that might sound like there's a lot of things going on at one time, and that I'm about to, you know, maybe slip more into professor mode than pastor mode. I promise it's, it sounds like more than it actually is. But part of... Part of teaching here is you guys getting to learn and say, okay, what are, the, what are the things that are important for me to pick up in the Word, and how do I read this into Jesus? So, all of this to say, church, the design that God had in Leviticus is the same thing that was fulfilled in Christ, is the same thing that he's given his church today. Amen? Let's start with Leviticus 1 beginning in verse 1 it says the lord called moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting saying speak to the people of israel and say to them when any one of you brings an offering to the lord you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd he shall offer a male without blemish he shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that it he may be accepted before the lord he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering And it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or the goats, he shall bring a male without blemish. And he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons the priest shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. He shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat, And the priest shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord." If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons, and the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar, and he shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place for ashes. He shall tear it open by its wings, but shall not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on the fire." It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Okay, God, we have read something that for many of us, we, we may have read this because we get to the beginning of Leviticus and then we remember why we tend to skip over Leviticus. Lord, help us to say, you know, your, your word is purposeful. Your word is intentional. It has been inspired by you. It has been given with a, a purpose that we know is to instruct, to edify, to reveal who you are to us. And Father, we know that when your son comes and he says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, that he is showing us that, God, you are consistent. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You are the same, Lord. What you have desired of us has not changed So, Father, just as we desire to know you more, because we trust that in knowing you by faith, that we're able to start seeing what that means for us, how that changes how we live, how that changes how we act. Lord, we we know that verse out of 1 Peter that we've probably heard pastors preach on many times that tell us we are a royal priesthood. Father, show us what it meant to be your priest, what that means for us, in Christ, and what that means for us today. Father, we love you. As we've been singing all morning, please open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts to you. Amen. All right, church, two things, two big things out of Leviticus 1. What do God's priests do, and then how do they do it? The first, God's priests present others as holy and pleasing to God. That is Why did God make priests? It's so that they would go out among the people and work so that the people would be presented holy and pleasing to God. Let's see where that pattern comes up. First, one of the words you hear a lot, it's the very first offering, the burnt offering. That Hebrew word is a really short one, hola, which is not to be confused with Spanish. Hola simply means to go up. It's kind of literally the picture of walking up steps. In fact, usually when that word is used in the Old Testament, it's the picture of the people going up on the mountain to be with God. So the very first sacrifice, the very first job God gives to his priests is saying, your work is to bring the people up, to bring them to be with me. That the, and it requires a actual literal sacrifice. Now this is something Israel would have understood. Because at this point we're in Leviticus, we've only seen Genesis and Exodus in history. They they would have seen God do these sacrifices in the past, right? You, you know the story of Abraham. He had to bring Isaac up on the mountain, and then when you know the God gave him a ram instead of Isaac. Uh, we know the story from the Passover when they had to kill the lamb and put the blood over the doorway so the angel would pass over. God has always required a sacrifice in order for his people to be right with him. So the very first work that he gives to his priests, it says, you guys are going to be ministering that sacrifice. You are going to be working to bring people to me. And there's, there's two details that go with the burnt offering, which I think I've, I've highlighted on the next slide. In verse 5, 7, 8, 11, nope, that's the next one. In verse 9, 13, 17, there we go. Anytime you see burnt offering in here, the Lord describes it as a food offering that has a pleasing aroma, which might not sound like that big a deal, but there's something baked in there. If you remember in Exodus, we talked about when you eat the offering, that's a picture of something being made internal. Right, that as, as the burnt offering was to be eaten, God's atonement work was going to be internalized. Like Literally, they were going to be saved from sin. All the, the wickedness, the brokenness, the, the damage that sin had caused on the inside, they were going to be given a new life as they take this sacrifice for themselves. But then there's also the aroma. And when we saw the, the incense offerings, God used the incense as a, a reminder of the external peace. Right, that the way you live, the way you conduct yourselves, all the things you do, all of that is to be pleasing to God. So in this burnt offering, God says, you are going to lead the people to be right with me. That's going to be internal. Right? You are literally going to learn who I am. You're going to take my nature on as yourself. And it's going to be external. Right? That your lives are not going to look the same. Because now you are living as my people. And I love one of the other phrases that gets repeated a lot is that Aaron was to do this with his sons. Verse 5, verse 7, verse 8, verse 11. His sons, his descendants, had roles to play in this. I mean, we're, we're talking about children dedication this morning, and how we as parents are saying we, we recognize our role is not to just be a godly example, not just to live for God, but to turn around and lead our children how to do that. And right here, right at the beginning, God's telling his priest, you're not just carrying on this work by yourself. Your children, your families, your future generations after you bring them into this work, right? You're not just going around to fix other people, and you're not just doing it so that your family can watch you do it. You are bringing your descendants, your children, to go walk through and do this with you. And he also, if you notice in verse 3 and verse 5, it's, it's kind of another weird detail. But it says, you're bringing this offering to the entrance of the tent of meeting. You're not doing it in the back room. Right? It's not the... Not the image of someone coming to the priest saying, oh, can you, can you please make me right with God? And the priest saying, well, let me, let me step back here behind the curtain. I'll come back and tell you what God said. It's, you're not creating a hierarchy with the priesthood. You're doing this in front of them so that you are going to the people. They're getting to watch the sacrifice be made. So we're seeing this picture, church, that the priests, their fundamental job from the very beginning, you work to help people become right with God. You lead them to be holy and blameless, holy and pleasing before the Lord. So that's what we're seeing in Leviticus. Is that something we've seen in Jesus? And let me read you a couple passages from the New Testament that touch on this. This is Paul in Colossians 1, verse 21. He says, "'And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, "'doing evil deeds,' He, talking about Christ, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Sounds a little bit like what we've been seeing in Leviticus, that Christ's work was to come and present us holy and blameless to God. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews 5, there's a lot about Jesus being a priest in here. But in verse 1, Hebrews 5 says for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. So the author of Hebrews says, this is what God has always been doing. And then verse seven, he says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So there, the author says, look, God has always said, my priests work to make my people right with God. He says, Jesus came, and that's exactly what Jesus has done. One more, from another book you probably haven't read that often, Jude. The very end of Jude ends with, now to him who is able, talking about Christ, to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his God's glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority, before all time and now and forever. Amen. What a a wonderful way to end a letter, first off. But here again, Jude is saying, Guys, do you remember what Christ has done for you? He came, and he made you right with God. That is the work of the great high priest. That is the work of all the priests that God has given to his people. So, if that's the work he's been given, then how do they do it? How do they do it? And this, this is where you and I might be, well, not might be, we're going to be a little bit different than Jesus' role. So we have to pay attention here. The priests do this by giving and offering a sacrifice of life, right? That God's priests present others as holy, holy and blameless before God by offering a pure sacrifice of life. Notice in verse 4, it is not the priest who makes the other people holy. That might be something the church needs to remember. It is not the priest who actually makes the other people holy. Why I say that, especially this has been one of my struggles in ministry, and I wouldn't be surprised if some of you here have the same one. When you see the brokenness, and you see the frustration, you see the hurt, you see the anxiety... You want to step in and fix it. And sometimes we even almost can get to the mindset of, but Lord, if I don't, then who will? And and I don't know about you, but sometimes I get more anxious over the fact that I don't know how to help or the fact that I can't step in to help. And I I get more focused on what I cannot do rather than on saying, but God, you have... I am not the one that fixes brokenness. Like, just me being there, like, I, I, Lord, whatever you want me to do, I will be there to do. I, I am not the one. That I am not the one that can fix it. In fact, one of my friends in, in North Carolina has a sign over the wall in his office. It just says, you are not Mr. Fix-It. You can't. It is not the priest who is the sacrifice notice in verse 4 how the one bringing the animal would put their head their hand on the head of the animal and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement that the symbolically the sin the guilt was being transferred from the person not to the priest but to the animal it was the sacrifice that enabled someone to be made right with God yes the priests were actively engaged in helping Israel make the sacrifices happen they were the ones who were you reminding the people of what the sacrifices were to look like they were walking through the people helping them do it they were the ones who actually killed the animal but it was not the priests they could not be the sacrifice themselves that will change when we get to Jesus but we'll get to that in a second The other thing that comes up a lot in this passage, when we're talking about the sacrifices, the phrase without blemish comes up a couple of times, at least in verse 3 and verse 10. It's the word tamim, which means complete or perfect or whole. And I love the picture of what God is doing here. He says, you're not just bringing me any old animal right? Like, I am not coming here to just make things a little bit better. I'm not coming here to to take your brokenness and just see what I can do with it and just get it to a place where maybe you could deal with it. God says, you are bringing me your very best because I'm going to give you my very best. I'm not just making things better. I am making them perfect. I am making them complete. I am making them whole. That is the type of God that I am. And that's the exact picture we get in Christ. Because when Jesus shows up, we see in chapter 9, verses 11 through 14 of Hebrews, it says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not one made with hands, that is not of this creation, not the one we saw at the end of Exodus, he, Christ, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, if that could sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, that phrase, right there, with to God? how much more will it purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Church, it is a a humbling thing for me to remember in ministry, but this is not just true for pastors. This is true for us as Christ followers, right? That my sacrifice and what I can give to someone, at the end of the day, it's not ultimately going to put them in a place where they are purified, where their conscience can be purified from dead works to serve the living God. Right, there is only one sacrifice that can accomplish that. And everything I do points to that sacrifice, but it, it can't be me. That is, that is what Christ has done. Because you notice the, the difference between Christ's sacrifice and the burnt offering we're seeing here. When these animals died... They didn't come back to life, did they? You know, the sacrifice was good for the moment, right? That death satisfied the sin. But there was no new life. The sacrifice didn't turn right back around and say, okay, now, now that I've covered that, now you come with me. Now we don't see that from any of these cows or these sheep or these goats, but we do see that with Christ. We have this new life. In Christ because he is both our priest and our sacrifice church this is why one of our values here as New River Fellowship is we value Christ as our life right if this is what God was working on in the priests if this is who Jesus is then for our church today we value Christ as our life that is one of the things we believe is going to drive everything we do here Christ is our life To value Christ as our life means we recognize he's our high priest, right? He is the one who steps in and actually makes us right with God. It is not how much good works we do for him. It is not how much service we're capable of. It is not in the numbers that we are able to present. It, it, It is not us. Church, it is Christ as our life. He gets the glory. He presents us as holy and blameless. He is the one. And church, the other thing, if Christ... Is redeeming all of our lives right the physical the spiritual the emotional the mental if he is covering all of this then that also gives us a blueprint for ministry right that we are not just a church that works to meet physical needs or just a church that works to you know reform things so that spiritual systems can be fixed we're not just a church focused on mental health i mean christ has come if he's redeeming all of this then this gives us a blueprint for ministry to say wow then we are free to look and join all these different places that we know our God is going to be at work. We get to minister to all of this because he is our high priest. But to recognize and to value, church, that Christ is our life also means we recognize he is our sacrifice. Right? And one of, one of the ways I heard it put was if Christ is our life, then we celebrate what he's done for us more than what we do for him. Amen? That that what we do as a church, when we gather together, what, what do we choose as our big wins? It's not the things that we're able to accomplish for him, right? We're not turning around saying, look at how many events, or look at how many people, look at the stuff we were able to accomplish on God's behalf. That's, Praise God for whatever he chooses to do through this church. But the, and we will, we will gladly, Lord, whatever you see fit to bring, man, we are ready and we, we will be excited for it. But what we celebrate, what is big, is what Christ is doing in, in us. And what we get to see, man, when we reach the community and the community gets to be here and be a part of what Christ is doing in their lives and then they go get back and sent out, that is, that is what we celebrate, church. And to value Christ as our life also means, how did Christ do this? It was discipleship. Just as we've been talking about with our kids, right? Christ did not perform his duty in secret, just like the priest did not go to some back room to offer the sacrifice. They did that right in front of everybody. And just how the priest brought their families in and brought their descendants in, so Christ handed this off to his disciples in the Great great Commission and said, you know, we do the same thing. So I, I think fundamentally that means us as a church, if we value Christ as our life, that means we work with other people, right? That means we work in fellowship in this room, right, this church family, because when we gather, I, it is a special thing. Please know this is not lost on me. In our room, we have different cultures and different generations that are gathered here. That's a big deal, Okay. That is a big deal. That is part of what the kingdom of heaven is about. There's there's something to be said. We can encourage one another when we're all with our peers, but we also all have the same blind spots if we're all with our peers. You learn the image of God when you are around other generations and other cultures. So in this fellowship, when we value Christ as our life, those things are going to be big deals to us. But it also means... We work together in the local community, right? That it, we want to know that if there are people out there who do not know God, we are going to go be with them, right? We are not creating our own little bubble over here, and they can go exist in their little bubble over there. That, that would be going against what we literally just saw last week with the Great Commission and how we see the priests were doing this with the people, bringing their people in. And at this point, I do need to, to give you the disclaimer, I understand that this is the worst possible plan to build out an organization, right? If, if you are coming in and you're saying, okay, we're going to focus on heart work and we're going to focus on people, that is the least efficient way that you can grow because people are complex and, you know, you, you watch people take steps forward and then steps backward. I mean, that's, is that not how Christ was with us? with the heartwork heartwork is often hard to measure so is you know it's easier to measure uh, what did my pastor friend put it he said building butts and budget you can measure those it's a lot harder to measure the heartwork that god is doing in a church family and yet i think it is amazing because you, you know the engineer in me craves the efficiency but the christ follower in me has to say but christ wasn't always after what was efficient he was after what we're seeing what brought people to be holy and pleasing to god i think if god has made us in his image church what do we see in our room today we see male and female we see different cultures we see different languages we see different skills different desires different interests what bonds you and i together and what enables us to go work through the kingdom together in the community is Christ, right? It is Christ what unites, what gives us a framework. Because if we said, well, let's just only go and work with those who think just like us, or look just like us, or sound just like us, or have the same experiences, yeah, we would have a lot less tension. Yeah, we'd have a lot less disagreements. We'd have a lot less discussions as to what might be the best way to handle it. We might be more efficient, but we might not be reflecting the kingdom as well. Because this is what this looks like when we value Christ as our life. So what do we practically do with this as a church? If it is true that the work God has always been about his priesthood doing is to present others as holy and pleasing to God by bringing them to this this sacrifice that he has done for, for Leviticus in these animals for us and Christ, then what do we do with this? I'm going to land with two final references to the New Testament that both look back on this and say, this is what we were after. First is the passage that you may be familiar with. 1 Peter 2, verse 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for his own possession, right? There we are. We're the priesthood. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Church, what do we do as a royal priesthood? We proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness and into light. Excellencies, there is the Greek word arete, which means all that's good about someone or something that is the responsibility given to the priests, that you proclaim all that is good about God. You proclaim all of who he is. In fact, that word in the Old Testament is often just praise, right? That we are here to praise God. Both, not just singing in a little building on Sunday mornings, but when we go out and when we engage and when we are with other people in the community, man, our attitude, what we do, we are praising God before everyone. So every part, of who we are, is going to just learn to tell others about Christ. That's one. And then Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 through 25, kind of builds this out a little bit. Because the author says, Therefore, brothers, since we have a confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened us through the curtain that is through his flesh, because Jesus is our sacrifice, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, Jesus, our priest, and our sacrifice, what do we do? Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Right there, church, i You're kind of expecting, because Jesus has done these things, what are we supposed to go do? We're probably thinking external, we're probably thinking kingdom building. And the first thing we're told, just trust who God is in full assurance of faith. And the more I thought about this week, the more I realized, you know, he's right, of course. But we are not prone to going boldly in things that we do not 100% trust, do we? If, if I only semi-believed in something, or I only kind of was confident in something, I'm probably not going out and presenting it. Very easy example, okay? I was probably a more vocal Virginia Tech football fan between 2004 and 2010. Some of you who can remember back to 1999 go back that far. You're much more vocal, much more advocate about being a fan than... The last three to five years, right, because the more confident you were that your team was going to go out and win, yeah, yeah, of course I'm a hokie the past couple of years, yeah, I'm a hokie, but because we 're rebuilding you know because things are taking place you know it's eventually going to be good it'll be fine you, you start adding all the qualifiers and maybe you start finding other teams to root for, just in case everything goes down the drain the right the more The more confidence you have in something, the more bold you're going to be with it. So it's not an accident that the first thing God says here, if my son is your priest, if my son is your sacrifice, if you're going to live out this priesthood, the first thing, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, church. And so I want to leave you this morning with, when we have our moment to reflect, what do you feel pressured to make happen in your faith? And what do you feel anxious about doing in your faith? Those are two ways you can kind of quickly see, oof, you know, I know I'm probably supposed to do this, but I'm, I'm hesitant about it, or I, I, I really don't want to go out there and do this. Those are good ways of telling us, ooh, I'm, I have not drawn full in full assurance of my faith here. So maybe today that is where you need to, when we have our moment to pray and to respond, maybe that is where it starts. It's saying, God, you know, I I believe you. I know your son has done these things for me, but I really don't want to share the gospel. Or, God, I really don't want to love that person. Or, God, but I really feel like I need this in order to make something happen in my life. Whatever you fill in the blank with, that might be what you pause and say, God, I just, you know what, Here, here it is. I need to first draw near to you with the full assurance of my faith. The second thing Verse 23 is, ironically, it's also more more internally focused. It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised his faithful. How many of you have either read something in the word or felt something in the spirit that you knew was true, and then when it didn't happen or happened differently, thought, oh, man, maybe that wasn't true, or it just kind of didn't sit right with you. Because I could tell you, Sundays, you know, we get to be here. We get to be in God's Word together. I get to, to be in community with you. Sundays are amazing, and I can leave here and get not even to the house, and I'll already be frustrated about something. You know, it's just how easy it is to forget who God is and what he has done, even in big moments of encouragement in times together. This is why God says you need to learn before you're doing anything else, because of who my son is, because you are my priest, you have to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And I love this because it gives you the picture that God is not sitting around measuring your faithfulness by how much you're doing, but by how you are responding to him. Right, that your faithfulness to him, if he shows up and says, I hear your prayer, I'm going to answer it, that you say, praise God, and you're still with him, not, okay, God, thank you, I'm going to go over here now. Or God shows up and says, I hear your prayer, we're actually going to do this thing instead that you go, well, God, then this must not be true, or God, you must not love me at all because you're not giving what I ask. Just how are you responding to the ways that God is there? This will show us, man, how are we holding fast? The confession of our hope and so the question that i have maybe you need to think on today how do you respond when things don't go your way that will probably be the one that that i'll have to work on the most church said for me how yeah, we know things to be true but you start watching things happen a little bit differently than you expect and you go well i guess i, I mean i know you're it's still true god but really i mean that this still doesn't seem right. To learn to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. That may be where you need to respond today. And the last one from verses 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more... As you see the day drawing near. I love this. I love this. Not only because he says encourage one another. But says as you notice that things may be getting worse. Or things in, in the world around you might not be looking how you like. What does he say to do? What's supposed to grow in the church? Encouragement. Man. I don't know. I don't know that uh, encouragement is what we tend to grow in the more we see things around us looking not how we would like them. Encouraging one another, stirring one another up to love and to good works. And it's amazing, church. We are only able to do that well We are only able to do that well if we are drawing near with the true heart and full assurance of faith, and if we are holding fast the confession of our hope without wavering. If we are not bold in that, just like uh, Dr. Camacho mentioned, you know that boldness in the New Testament is often linked to how you are going before God. If we're not with him, we're probably not going to encourage others well. We're probably not going to stir one another up to love and to good works. And so the third question there maybe to reflect on is, who are you encouraging? Because if we are drawing near, if we are holding fast to our hope, then we're going to be encouraging people. And not, not blind optimists. There's not a Greek word for blind optimism that's used there when it says encouragement. It just says, in the midst all the more as you see the day drawing near, in the midst of wherever you're at. First, don't neglect to meet together. You have to do this together. But you're encouraging. You're reminding people of what you've seen God do. You're working to help them be holy and pleasing. So if this is what God had for his priests, if this is what Christ has shown us, then church, this is what we will do because we at New River Fellowship value Christ as our life. We work to present others as holy and blameless by pointing them to the sacrifice that Christ has made. Father, forgive us when we stray from that. Lord, we've heard from your word. We're going to have a second just to respond. God, maybe today we need to be honest with you Just about something we are anxious about or we feel pressured to do but not confident in because our our boldness to you is lacking. Father, maybe show us today through your spirit how we need to draw nearer to you. Father, maybe today you're going to show us just as we're praying here, you know, hey, child, you, when you don't get your way here, that just does not look right. Father, maybe today you're going to say, I I really want you today, child, to learn to walk with me without wavering. Why? Because, Lord, you may be telling some of us, child, I need you to be an encourager. You've been walking with me. You have have wisdom. You have experience. You need to be taking that to encourage others to love and to good works. You need to be sharing what you have. So Father, we take a second this morning. We come before you. We'll be quiet. We will, we will wait to hear from your Spirit. King of glory, divine majesty, every perfection adorns thy nature and sustains thy throne. The heavens and the earth are thine. The world is thine in its fullness. Thy power created the universe from nothing. It is thy wisdom that has managed all its multiple concerns, presiding over nations, over families, over individuals. Thy goodness is boundless. All creatures wait on thee and are supplied by thee, are satisfied in thee. How precious are the thoughts of thy mercy and grace how excellent thy loving kindness that draws men to thee lord teach us to place our happiness in thee the blessed god never seeking life among the dead things of the earth or asking for that which satisfies the deluded but may we prize the light of thy smile employ the joy implore the joy of thy salvation find our heaven in thee thou hast attended to our happiness more than we can do Though we are fallen creatures, Thou has not neglected us. In love and pity, Thou has provided us a savior. Apply his redemption to our hearts by justifying our persons and sanctifying our natures. God, we, we confess our transgressions. Have mercy on us. We are weary. Lord, give us rest. Lord, we are ignorant. Make us wise unto salvation. Father, we are helpless, but let thy strength be made perfect in our weakness. God, we are poor and needy, yet bless us with Christ's unsearchable riches. God, we are perplexed and tempted, yet let us travel on unchecked, undismayed, knowing that thou hast said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. Father, blessed be thy name. Amen.